everyone. Welcome to episode 112 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. Today's a really cool first. Uh, I have someone who is not technically a fitness professional or closely allied with our industry, but um, I actually welcome author Brad Stolberg, which is cool because I've read two of Brad's books, Peak Performance, that you did with Steve Magnus, and uh, more recently, The Practice of Groundedness, which I just reread because I need to be plugged into that kind of stuff on a regular basis. And we're going to talk about that. But uh, you also are a regular uh, contributor to the New York Times. I mean, I was reading this. I'm like, wow, you've written for the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, GQ, Time, a whole bunch of other stuff. And you're also the co-creator of your The Growth Equation program. And you're a fellow at the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health. I mean, that's a pretty cool resume. So great to have you on the show. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. I appreciate having you. So I, I think we can start with how we got connected. I saw one of your posts on my friends, both Dr. Mike Isertel and Nick Shaw of Renaissance Periodization shared it. So I saved it and I like, I like finding other people's content. If it's good, I will share it on my own wall. I'll tag that person right at the top. So the way it actually directs people to find them. And you have, you have great stuff. You and I actually share sort of similar style of graphics to, on social media. And this is why, you know, for all the complaining about social media, people, all the negative, what have you, I like the power of it to connect good people. And then I turned around and shared you with a couple of my friends that led to some cool conversations like Luca Hosvar and Jonathan Goodman. And I mean, I like supporting people who are, who are talking about cool things. So that's my mindset. Yeah, I really appreciate you um, for, for doing all that. I think that social media is a tool. And like any tool, you can use it effectively and to your benefit, or you can use it without intention and deliberately, and you end up driving a nail through your finger and it's miserable. <laughs> there you go. So I wanted to preface that. And we took, you know, obviously I mentioned your book, The Practice of Groundedness, and I reread it. And I, I think the thing that might be the most valuable is to actually pull out a concept you talked a lot about, which was heroic individualism. And there were sort of two things that you had said. And, and I'm listening to this going, wow, I am so bad for that mindset of feeling like I have to do it all. Uh, I, I'm going to get you to explain it. So I definitely catch myself being caught in that mental trap. But there's another side of it too, where you mentioned how the fitness industry is also bad for a lot of marketing that reflects heroic individualism. And what I'm talking about with me internally and this are actually two different things. But I wanted to open it up and have you explain what it is, where the problems lie, and we'll just go from there. All right. So the the way that I define the entire problem that the book is trying to solve is using this, this phrase, heroic individualism, which is a constant game of one-upsmanship against yourself and others, where measurable achievement is the predominant, if not only measure of success. So you constantly have to be better than you were the day before, and you constantly have to be better than other people. And we're judging better based on something that we can track. So weight on the bar, number of coaching clients, number of followers on social media, you name it. And this is really nuanced and tricky because there is so much value in trying to be better than you were the day before in personal growth and personal improvement and working hard and being consistent. And yet what can happen with heroic individualism is the focus on that measurable result gets so strong 
that you almost forget about why you're doing the thing in the first place and you chase that result. And that's when you can get reckless and get yourself into trouble physically or emotionally. So I know that this podcast is, um, is predominantly listened to by folks that train hard or that help others coach to train hard. You can think of it like the athlete that is nearing some kind of arbitrary bench park number. So maybe it's a 400 pound deadlift or a 300 pound bench press, whatever it is. And the athlete that gets really obsessed about that number, they're the one that's generally going to make a reckless mistake in their training. And that's going to cost them. Um, whereas the athlete that can want to hit that goal and want to hit that number, but focus more on the process, hold that goal a little bit more lightly, they'll enjoy their training more and they probably won't get injured. So that, I mean, I think a lot of people are, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. I think for the fitness professional, one of the risks, so I'll sort of try to explain where I feel like I feel that pressure. Yeah. I definitely feel very achievement oriented. And one of my favorite books that really aligns with something else we'll talk about than the arrival fallacy is the gap in the gain by Dr. Benjamin Hardy and Dan Sullivan. And it's this whole idea of always look into the horizon, which if you've ever driven across prairie cross country, you never get there, right? There's always the yep. same horizon and you struggle to really enjoy and feel satisfied with the wins along the way. And you're always caught up in, well, the next thing I have to do, I will give a great example. I, I mean, I've made a mission of mine to grow Instagram following. And, and you and I have talked about this. We share that same mission because there can be a lot of good. People will say, oh, you know, it's it's a vanity metric, blah, blah, blah. I find that's a bit of a sour grapes attitude for people who've failed to put in the effort, have a plan, a strategy, uh, just haven't had any success with it. At the end of the day, we talk about building email lists. We talk about, in your case, you want people. What what, what, have, what have your books been? You sold, what, 350,000 copies of your books? Is that, is that yeah, the across Yeah, across all three, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, and then what's, what's your, do you, you have a third book, Passion Paradox? Is, am I Passion Paradox. Yep. Okay, good. Cause I haven't read that one. I really should. So we are trying to get good ideas in front of more people. A social media following is just one of the ways that you reach more people. So I like to look at it in that term, in, in that positive, but as my following has grown, I a hundred percent feel that it's never enough. You want more. I will later mm -hmm. today, based on pacing, top over 100,000 followers. Neat. By the time this is aired, it'll be more than that. But there's, for a very long time, that felt like a very distant goal. And it's it's both just another number, but it is sort of a significant milestone, I suppose. We attach things to like that to round numbers. But I absolutely, along the way, as I've hit 10 and 25 and 50 and 75, there's a moment of, okay, cool. And then it's like, all right, it immediately it shifts to, okay, cool, continue. And no, I don't want people to think that's the only thing I'm obsessed with or what have you, but it's in there as you've made it this purpose for all the good that it brings and the opportunities that it brings. That's the trap. What you're describing yeah, is it's never true. enough because my guess is if, when did you first get on Instagram? So I've been messing around with purposelessly with Instagram, probably my guess since maybe 2017 ish. I don't know. I turned it off a little while way back. And when I, did you, when did you get more serious about it? January of 2020 with 3000 followers. So imagine if in January in 2020, I would have said, Hey man, do you think you'd be happy with a hundred thousand followers? 
You probably would have been like, heck yeah, like I'd be content. I wouldn't feel the need to do more, so on and so forth. And now you get there and you're telling me that you might hit a hundred thousand today and you'll probably be happy. It'll be a nice number. And then it's like, all right, like exponential growth, baby, let's go. Let's get to 150 or whatever the next, next number is. And that's nothing, um, that's nothing like unordinary, right? We, we, we as a species evolved not to be content. It is not in our nature to be content. The reason for this is way back our prehistoric ancestors on the savannah, there was tons of scarcity, right? Not a lot of food. So if you had a kill hunting and you had food or you're gathering and you found um, a surplus of, of grain, berries, what have you, you couldn't afford to be content. You couldn't just chill out and eat it and, and then hang. You had to get on the bandwagon for your next hunt. You had to keep foraging because you never knew when that time of famine was going to come. So this is very much in our DNA. In, in neuroscience speak, dopamine, the neurochemical that is associated with striving is much stronger than serotonin, which is the neurochemical associated with liking. So we want to strive. We get energy from striving. We get hooked on striving much more than we get the feeling of contentment. So this is just in our nature. And, and I think it's almost impossible to turn it off unless you like go to a Zen monastery. And, and there's no, and, and you laugh, but it, I say that seriously because there's a reason that monks are in a monastery. They're removed from all of these worldly metrics. So if you're going to live outside of the monastery, you're going to have to play this game and you're going to have to be aware of these traps and learn how to work with them. And there's another lens through which we can look at this too. I've been talking about this a fair bit recently on the podcast. It's another human drive. It, it's a drive for status because humans perceive you know, everything in life through the lens of status. And I, I try to caution people in our industry because status driving is also very common. And I just had uh, my pal Steve Krebs on and, and Steve is very clear in saying that it's actually okay to want to uh, want success. It's absolutely an okay thing. I try to look at things like success and Instagram following and, and whatever else comes along as a way to support and share other people, share good ideas for the greater good. And I'm mindful of the cravings for things like status. I try to tell trainers, don't seek status. Try to build the impact you can have on the world. Status is a byproduct of doing a lot of other things well. You as a published author of some very popular mainstream books, you gain status. You have achieved a status as a result of that. But I think one of the things that practice of groundedness really highlights, and it doesn't necessarily talk about status, it's sort of the warning to be mindful and aware of these traps and pitfalls. So, and, and I can definitely see how in our industry, a lot of people crave status. They're in a hurry to achieve status. And they think that if they achieve the status, it'll make them happy. And that's the the other aspect of the arrival fallacy too is, you know, when I, and you have a slide, you have a post about this. When I achieve this thing, I think I will be happy and then we're never satisfied. Yeah, it's um, exactly when, when, then, or if then, um, but uh, it never works out. You know, if I just get that PR, if I just get a hundred thousand followers, if I just marry that beautiful person, if I just hit a hundred K in revenue, whatever it is, then I'll be content. And maybe for a day or a week, but 99.9% .9 of people then lose that contentment. 
And I don't really deal with this problem by telling people that they ought to be more content with their accomplishments, because I think that, again, we're fighting against our biology. I deal with this problem and what the literature shows is by having people be content during the striving. So it's the oldest saying in sport, process over outcome. There's two mountain climbers and they both want to get to the peak of the mountain equally as bad. They want the status that comes with it. They want the success, all that. One mountain climber is so focused on the selfies that they're going to take from the peak, the Instagram posts that they're going to share from the peak, how they think that when they get to the peak, suddenly their self-worth is going to be validated, um, all that stuff. The second climber also wants to get to the peak, but they really enjoy climbing. And the reason that they enjoy climbing is because they climb with the community, they climb with friends and they stop at night to enjoy the view from the side of the mountain. And they're focused on the craft of climbing every bit as much as getting to the top. Now, what we know is that particularly in climbing, both climbers have an equal chance of getting to the top of the mountain. But the second climber has a much better chance of getting down. The first climber, it's called summit fever in the climbing world. And this is an area that's been researched is you're so obsessed with getting to that goal that you take reckless risks, you get to the top and then you get caught up in a storm on the way down. You should have been patient. You shouldn't have summited that day. And the way that I like to think about it is this metaphor applies to everyone, right? Like the second climber has such a better chance in a long-term sustainable career, whether it's as a coach, whether it's as an investor, whether it's as a physician, the first climber is going to emotionally burn themselves out or the research shows get caught up in unethical behavior. I mean, this is Lance Armstrong. This is Elizabeth Holmes. Um, this is anybody that's using performance enhancing drugs illicitly in a federation or sport where they're not supposed to be. It's all just trying to get to that top of the mountain. That's a really good analogy. So let's take the the practical takeaway a little further for anyone in in certainly my industry and our my industry. You know, it's it's entrepreneurial. It's yep. so it, it cascades into broader broader industries as well. But what do you think are some practical takeaways? Some things for people to be alert to. Some some maybe some mindset practices. The things that you believe in. You know, and you, you're very evidence based in the way you approach this stuff. That yeah, listening to this can go okay, cool. I. I hear what Andrew's saying, and I actually, I feel that too. And this all makes sense to me. Now, how do I safeguard myself? Right. So the there's a couple of, of things that I think are really important. The first is to build community and not performative community, but real community. People that are close friends, that get it, that are going through the same thing as you. And y'all are going to hold each other accountable when you fail and when you succeed. So when you fail and things go to shit, that community is going to be there and support you because they get it. And when you succeed and your head gets big, that community is going to say, hey, man, like right back here on the ground. Um, the second thing that I think is really important is this notion of it's better to be a celebrity in your own physical neighborhood or your own physical gym than it is on the Internet. And this is hard. And a lot of people say, well, you're only saying that because you already have status or Andrew, you only say that because you have 100,000 followers easy for you. But I think that the more that we have actual in person relationships in homes, and for those in the fitness industry, I think a lot of that is probably the gym that you work at or the gym that you own or the gym that you train at, the better off we'll be. Because 
those real in-person physical roots, those also keep us grounded. And I find in my own life, the times when I get restless and when I want to push for more and more and more on the internet are the precise times when I haven't made time to hang out with friends in real life. Or when I've prioritized efficiency so much that instead of going to the gym that I train at, I train in my basement so that I can like be home to get that Instagram post up or whatever it is. And I do that for so long, or excuse me, I do that for too long and I start to feel like crap and I start to feel myself checking the phone more frequently or checking how many books I've sold or whatever. And that for me is a really good sign to double down on like in-person community. And then I think the third thing that can, um, that can help with this is something I alluded to earlier, which is just to look back at wherever you started and ask yourself, like, would I have been happy then if I had what I have now? And for a lot of people, the answer is yes. So it's just like a really nice cue to pause just for a second and like have a moment of gratitude for, for where you started and, and where you're at. And then the last thing that I'll say that I think is really important, particularly for um, entrepreneurs that work in fitness where there's just so much um, hustle involved and there needs to be hustle involved. One of my best friends owns a gym and a personal training um, program. Like it, I get it. Y'all work really hard and for good reason. And because of that, it's so easy to like get sucked up in this tornado of like more, more, more responsiveness, responsiveness, responsiveness. So I think having some boundaries, even if it feels like it's sucking your soul is really important. So for this person in particular, he puts his phone and computer away all day Sunday. Digital Sabbath. Gives his brain a chance to like reset. Now, of course, the first three hours of that is miserable. He's like reaching for his pocket, feeling false vibrations, super anxious. But then by later in the day, he settles in and he remembers what it's like not to be hyper-connected. Digital Sabbath, which is something that I, it was on a list of things. I've done that in little micro doses where if I'm working on writing something, I if the phone is nearby, it's quite a compulsive thing to kind of check messages or what have you. So I will literally, if I'm comfortable on the couch, I'll just chuck the tablet and the phone across the other side of the couch or somewhere I can't reach it, or I will put them in another room. And I do find that I get more clarity. Something else I find helps is if you reframe the mindset, instead of, you know, craving to need to see that, that dopamine hit of whatever unknown thing I'm going to get next in the inbox, it's to actually reframe it as here's a momentary challenge where I'm beating the craving. I'm beating that desire. And that makes me feel really good about the effort to, hey, I can put my phone away for an hour or two and things will still be there. And that little mindset shift actually helped me with this. And I'm more productive that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great it's a great tool to train self-discipline. Like there's not a better tool than having the urge to check your phone and not limits. checking it. There's limits. Um, yes. Big limits. Yeah. And I think something that you mentioned earlier is important too, which is um, just coming back to your purpose for whatever it is that you're doing. Like, why'd you get into it in the first place? And make sure that you're focusing there because that's when you get yourself lost in the process and all the, the, the good fulfillment that comes with that. So in your case, we'll keep using you as a case study. And I followed you on social media to see this. Now, you said that a big part of the reason you're on social media is to share information, but equally important is to elevate good ideas and connect people. Mm -hmm. And you're doing that all the time. Like I see it. And um, 
that just shows that like you stay true to your purpose. For me, social media is the entry point to people that I ultimately want to move towards reading or listening to my books mm -hmm. because I believe there's a lot of value in my books. So if I'm suddenly on social media, you know, posting pictures of my training or whatever it is, that could be totally appropriate for someone else. But for my goals, it doesn't make sense. So it's about getting real clear on what your goals and what your purpose is and then sticking, sticking to those. And people will see when you're motivated to share and support others, right? And, and this is why I, one of the first people I connected you with was Luca Hosovar. And I'm going to mention something you said earlier, context of Luca too. But Luca is a voracious reader. He shares a lot of stuff on his media and he's got a podcast that is, it's a sensational podcast. I was a recent guest on it. It was fun. And I felt like Luca would value a connection to you a lot. And I felt like you would value a connection to him. And so I did it because, hey, I think this would benefit both of you guys. Not because I'm like, hey, Andrew, I want a pat on the back for doing this. I'm not interested in that. Most of the stuff that I do like that actually goes unseen. It's like the the iceberg under the water. And I'm not worried about scoring points for it. It just, it's a good feeling. And then, you know, I end up immersing myself in the environments, traveling to conferences, speaking at them, where I get to spend time around these friends of mine that I find is that community you talk about. I will say this, <laughs> for the people listening, I've, I've echoed this before, be very careful about watching what Luca does on his social media, or even like just you see the output and the amount of things that I'm juggling. We are probably wired to handle that level of work and go, go, go. And if you feel pressure to try to keep up with that, that's a recipe for misery, okay? So it's really important that you guys find what are your boundaries, what are your what are, go what are your goals, what's important to you, especially if you got young kids. I mean, you're not gonna be able to do the kind of crap that Luke and I are doing. And I even look at Lucas sometimes, I'm like, shit, I need to do more. <laughs> That's a dangerous thing. But at least I put it forefront in my mind so that way I'm I'm alert to it. Um, and, yeah. and you don't, and I think that's a great point because one of the, the things where you get into the comparison trap is you don't know what's going on in other people's lives. So like you mentioned, someone that has young kids or a puppy or someone that's training 80 elite athletes in person isn't going to have the time to post at the quantity and quality, which is really important that someone like you does. That person's not better or worse than you. Given their current life goals and their current situation, they have different priorities and different places they use their energy. When I'm deep in writing a book, I am not going to be posting as often as when I'm not writing a book. I'll probably never post as often as you well, I shouldn't say never, but I, I can't imagine I am again, because your work is you've built all this information on evidence-based training, and now you want to get it out there and connect people. That's your primary work and coach. My work is to write a book. So it's just knowing what your goal is and that can change over time, but then staying true to your goal and not comparing yourself to someone that's playing a different game. You know, it's like, if you, if you are really in, um, if, if having a certain body weight or having a certain like speed to power ratio is really important to you and you're comparing yourself to, you know, the heavyweight power lifters, well, they're playing a different game than you. And I'll flip this one around too. And it's more of a, a nudge for you because you're already doing it. The fact that you've written three books is a fourth on the way. And there, there are a ton of words, a ton of concepts, a ton of ideas, good content creation. You know, when social media is really just, a very surface level touch point. We tend to have more surface level thoughts 
that will hopefully get people to build a relationship. And then that's where, you know, responding to messages, thanking people, responding to comments goes a long way. But then it can lead people into the more applied things, whether it's my training articles for Teen Nation or Muscle and Fitness, or maybe it's some of the more career success concepts. Maybe it's going and, and seeing me speak at a conference. For you, like you said, it's about getting people to read your books. But you can also take all the stuff that's in the books, tease pieces out into social media, and then use it to lead people back to the books for a deeper dive in those concepts. So you have a giant reservoir of content for social media that I know you've already been pulling from. And this is what Jonathan Goodman does. And I introduce you to Jonathan as well. Jonathan's written 10 books, you know, on, on fitness concepts. He has a, and, and tons of articles through his, his website. Jonathan has a gold mine of stuff that he's basically just been digging through to share social media. And Jonathan, we got on a call a while back, went over social media strategy. He executed on it. And he's blown up his following. But Jonathan's also got a, a well-known legacy in the industry too. And he's got a lot of career capital. You have a lot of capital with these books. And every time you write another book and it gets out there, that's more capital. And it's also more of a, people, when they decide whether they're going to follow you or not, this is something I try to teach people. There's a degree of external fame outside of what the specific content is. You want good content. People will follow for good content. But if they look at the bio and they go, oh shit, this guy, whoa, he wrote, I, hey, I read that book. Oh, I got to follow him, Right. Or, you know, they're like, oh, he's a published author. That, and again, we're talking about status again, but we're talking about career capital that validates someone's choice to give a little piece of their time in their life to follow you, which takes, potentially takes space away from seeing a photo of their friend's kids. So, yep. which is the biggest trap, by the way, and something that, um, that I think about often, and I have a couple of friends that like, I'm really just trying to, to, to break open their brain and help them realize this is what's your goal for using social media that's the first thing if your goal is simply to have fun or to stay in touch with friends that's fine then share as many pictures of your life as you want that's why you're using it if your goal is to grow in a specific area and provide people with information in that area unless you're a freaking kardashian Stop with the pictures of like your frozen yogurt and where you went out to lunch. Nobody cares. Now, I want to be clear and withhold judgment. If you're using social media purely to keep up with your friends, that is the entire purpose of the thing. But don't expect yourself to grow a following outside of those friends unless you're a Kardashian because nobody cares. And such a big trap is people, they start to get people on social media into their stuff and they want to feel cool and liked and all this stuff. So then they start sharing more personal things. And A, it can be dangerous because now everything that you do is a part of your brand. So your whole life has become your quote unquote work. And B, oftentimes that stuff doesn't resonate with people. So if you're a fitness professional, there might be a time and a place for you to share images of you training or you working with clients because that validates that shows you have skin in the game. And sometimes it's actually a helpful communication tool. But if you're a fitness professional and you're constantly sharing like your smoothie, people are going to get annoyed with that because it's annoying. And you can, I think you can do a really good job because there, there's a flip side to this. And I think it's a balance. People also want to have a bit of a relationship with you. And I think your stories are a good place to let people see more of that versus the wall posts. It's funny. Mm -hmm. you actually, I was going to make a point and you said the phrase skin in the game, which was perfect. I'll use Nassim Nicholas Taleb as an example. Um, 
one thing, and it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine with authors of books, when you follow them on social media, usually Twitter is the bad place for this, and then they get very heavy. I find it's the same thing with celebrities, with actors, musicians, and they get very hard into their political, social, ideological belief systems, especially if they're particularly combative about it. Um, I think Scott Adams is a really good example of this behavior. The Dilbert guy, yeah. Yeah, the Dilbert guy. And it's like, uh, um, Nassim Taleb, honestly, he, 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 his writing is some really good ideas. He has a talent, and I've said this before, he has a talent for being pompous and arrogant to the point where he makes everybody who's reading it, he's trying to make you feel like he's smarter than you and he wants you to know it. But then he's not a very nice guy on social media. He gets into some really pseudoscientific nonsense. So I had to unfollow him a long time ago. And there are countless other examples of celebrities. And it's it's not that I follow the ones who align a little bit more with maybe the ideology that I have versus the ones that don't. I guess I really don't subscribe to these extreme ideologies anyway. But it's just the fact that they're so determined engaging this stuff heavily. I'm just like, I'm really interested in, in your ideas because of the books you wrote. And yeah, I, I think the heuristic I use is um, you can think that you're capturing an audience, but sometimes that audience captures you. Um, for me, the prime example of this is, um, I think you mentioned Scott Adams, uh, Jordan Peterson. Uh, the internet ruined his brain, at least in my opinion, right? Like he was... 10, 15 years ago, he was like the, the, the world's probably foremost like Jungian psychologist. And he had this podcast that was all about like ideas from religion and myth and how they um, how they overlap with modern psychological science. And it was really fascinating, great stuff. And then he wrote those those books. What is it? 10 rules or 12 rules for life. And, and those were fine. Like there's nothing wrong with those books. I think they're kind of simple, but like it's good information. You know, no one's going to pick up that book and be worse for reading it. But then something happened like two and a half, three years ago. And I think what happened is he got a lot of fame from those books. He got this huge Internet following and he gravitated to like extreme beliefs on so many topics that have nothing to do with his area of expertise. And also the quantity of that guy's tweets he tweets like 19 times a day which i just don't think is great for your brain um that to me is an example of a trap where he thought that he was growing and capturing an audience but that audience was actually capturing him and, and changing how he thinks in a way that probably doesn't align with what his initial values were so myself and my collaborative partner what we always like check in on with each other is like don't lose your mind on the internet now, the bright side is if you have decent ethics and values, you'll never get big enough to lose your mind on the Internet because there just aren't enough people like, you know, you, your following will max out at a certain point because unfortunately, they're just the audience isn't that big for people that want like moderation and evidence based fitness advice. Um, what they want is like, you know, pictures of Thor deadlifting, which is fine, but that's not your game. Yeah. Funny, speaking of Thor, Hafter Bjornsson, I walk into my the gym that I contract out of a couple of weeks ago and he's there because he's got ties here to Alberta. His wife's from this area. So I just went up and said hi to him. Nicest guy ever, right? So He's an animal. He's a monster. He's huge. Huge human being. And your, your Peterson example is a good one. And Peterson is a very contentious figure in my industry. And I refuse to get involved in any sort of ideological things because figures like Peterson or Elon Musk or... Rogan, and they tend to go to one side of it. And then there are figures on the other side of the spectrum. 
and they become. But in our, in our, in in our, I'm going to use R because I'm enough in fitness. But certainly in your industry, I I don't think you see as many like you know utopian communist kumbaya singers as you do like gravitate towards the Andrew Tate you know um, the the systems out to get you. Tate gets really extreme, and again, I, I'm really careful what I say with these things because. We all have values and principles, and I am comfortable saying this, and I consider myself a very classic liberal. Now, people hear the mm-hmm. L word, and they're freaking out. It's like classic liberals are pretty different from maybe sort more of what the, mon- the modern thing. And I think For sure. very, and again, this is getting into weird territory, but we can talk about this. The modern, I find that there's much more tolerance for authoritarian belief systems and again there's there's political authoritarianism in the, in like what we're seeing in iran and china and russia but then there's this attitude that shows up on both ends of the ideological spectrum that basically thinks that they can tell through law or whatever other force they have people what they can say what they can do how they can live their lives what rules they live under and i tend to be more on the other end of that where it's like i'm very based on you know, I don't think that stuff is really good. And I like a little bit more of a freedom to do most things as long as it's not infringing upon other people's rights. Or- totally. And that's like, that's like, um, that's lowercase L liberalism. I mean, that's the definition of liberalism is like, you make progress by giving people freedom to do most things unless they're harming others. And the best ideas end up winning out. Um, and and I and I hear you. I think that there's a lot of um, on the the right. It's like a more authoritarian tilt, and on the left, it's more like thought policing or like you know um, dialect policing. So what you can say and what you can't say. Uh, and and it's funny we're in this territory. Hopefully, people find it interesting. It's definitely something that I don't talk about too often, but I'm glad to do it with you because sure, we'll be I, careful I, with this one. Yeah. And it's what I'm going to say. Like I think that the biggest thing is is it in good faith you know like let's take this issue of gender if somebody misgenders someone and it's in good faith meaning it was an accident they didn't intend any harm and that's clear then to me the response ought to be don't worry like no big deal you know i have clinical ocd it sucks clinical ocd is really bad sometimes people are like oh i'm so ocd well, I don't sit there and be like, I can never talk to that person. They're evil. Like it's in good faith. They didn't mean harm. They're, they're uneducated about this thing. And if it's a true friend, I take time to educate them. Whereas if it's not in good faith and someone's intentionally doing it to be an asshole, then that person's an asshole. And, and like, to me, that's how I like to think about the current moment that we're in. And there's a lot of in bad faith actors that I do think should be punished by the market, quote unquote, canceled, whatever it is. But then I think there's a lot of in good faith actors that are getting punished that don't deserve it. And I think the internet is the worst place for this because there's no context. And I think you explain it really well there, especially at the end. I think let's, I'm going to give everybody something actionable here. You you won't see this stuff on my media. I don't talk about belief systems because, you know, individual things might give people the wrong impression that I am further along the spectrum on either, either side of it based on that individual issue when it's actually quite nuanced and I'm just simply not interested in attracting the tribe that te- the, yep. especially the extreme tribes that tend to be drawn to this kind of crap. Yep. I certainly don't believe that I belong in either of those tribes. 
I'm not interested in immersing myself in media that is a perpetual outrage, whether we're either wound up into outrage by the people we agree with, or we are outraged by seeing the things we disagree with, which is both sides endgame, which is why I refuse to follow this stuff. I don't want to be exposed to it. And it's not about being ignorant. It's not about putting my head in the sand. It's about, I can have a much greater impact. On Bingo. You're with- not making a freaking difference by your tweet. Yes. Now, I will say that, and, and hopefully I don't piss off too many listeners, I doubt it, because you, you have a very evidence-based approach yourself. One area where I personally broke this rule, and I lost a ton of followers, but like you said, my background, my graduate school is in public health, mm. and I'm a fellow at the University of Michigan. And during COVID, in particular around vaccination, I thought that there might be some people in my audience that fall further, let's call it to the right on the political spectrum, um, but like myself. So I thought that perhaps I could reach some of those people, not in a, you're a loser or you're dumb if you're anti-vax, but in a, hey, like, I get it. These, like, this is a scary time. You know, COVID's scary. Like, a vaccine that was developed fast is scary. And yet, like, here's how trials work. And by the way, that supplement that you're taking that's called immune booster hasn't been tested on anyone ever. And that could literally be someone's urine in a little pill capsule. Um, so if, if you're willing to take that, like perhaps let, like DM me and I'll, and I'll share with you why I am okay getting vaccinated in the research that I've seen. And um, unfortunately, that's a terrible mistake. I spent like a month just getting like the worst trolls and, um, and I probably didn't change anyone's mind. And I think that gets back to your philosophy, which is like, you're probably not going to change someone's mind on the internet. So if you're going to try on some of these issues, pick your spots and otherwise like do it out in the real world. I would have been better off like volunteering in a vaccine clinic, to be honest, in hindsight. And there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, it is going to bring a lot of stress. I mean, I won't touch that particular topic with a 10 foot pole. Um, I'm eight. I'm not an expert in public health. I'm not a physician. And I, I think that a lot of fitness professionals can get caught in the trap of on either side of the aisle on these issues. And this is a particularly polarizing one. They get into these traps where they start talking about their belief systems. And I think we have a problem where we have bad faith actors on both sides of the aisle on most issues. And I think we have very poor messaging on one side of the aisle and we have a lot of grifting on the other side. Yes. Frankly, I just don't want to go near that stuff. And here's- Yeah, you're smart, smart, smarter than me. Um, and I, I think that- you're smarter than me. Maybe I'll change my mind, but for now you're um, you're smarter than me. But you're right too, because you look at the most popular people, at least here in the States, and I don't know if you see this in Canada too, in both, in both sides of the aisle on social media, and they're all the most divisive. And it's, it's you know, all- they're like wind-up dolls. Like their whole purpose is just to stoke rage and then capitalize on it. That's exactly it. And so this is what I try to caution fitness professionals on. You know, you may have some very strong beliefs on this stuff. I understand that. But it's people try, what do we talk to our clients about? Focus on the things we can control and try not to, you know, just get defeated by the things beyond our control. All this sort of stuff is meant to make us feel like everything is scary. I know we're off fitness, but we're really on career and life and the groundedness. So it is on theme of this episode. If you are determined to really plug into this stuff or God forbid, really push it on social media or police what other people say about it. First of all, if someone comes in and starts trying to police me 
on any of these sort of things or encouraging me to take sides or to have, you know, say in anything. I'm not hearing that at all. Cause like, listen, I'm not, we, we already talked about that. I'm not participating in this stuff. Yeah. Not- and I think just to interject real quick, I think the thing there is like, there's a difference to me between someone trying to quote unquote police what you're saying and someone having an in good faith, like conversation with you. And in, 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 in that difference again is like, Hey, you, you know, you said this, here's what I think you mean. Here's how I'm interpreting it. Like, have you considered this? Now that generally speaking is very different than, you know, um, something that I get, I've picked on the far right a lot. Something that I get from people on the left is like, this is oozing of privilege to which I'm like, yeah, I do have privilege. Like, and, and as someone that studied public health, none of this shit matters if you're homeless and your basic needs aren't met, but that's not my audience. And if it was every single day, I'd write the same thing, which is like, we need to fix homelessness. And I don't know how. And, and, but that's not what I'm doing. That's not the game I'm playing. Um, and it's like, if you're sitting on Instagram with the time to read my stuff and comment to me, you probably have some privilege in your life too. And there, you said something in there that I think is important. And every once in a while, I mean, I think my stuff is, is reasonably tame in terms of anything that would ever be considered divisive, but people will find things to argue about. Uh, anytime I say anything positive about the gym, there are people come in like, oh, you know, blah, 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 gyms are terrible. You should get outdoors. And it's my, my usual response. I mean, if, if it's fairly innocuous or thoughtless, I'll just go, you know, no one said that you can't go outdoors. These things are not mutually exclusive. Right? You try to be reasonably nice. If they're obvious bad faith actors, I'll just delete them, block them, get rid of them. Like I, I just that stuff is also not allowed to enter my my space and my emotional well-being and no one's entitled to, to just be an asshole to you on the internet you can just kind of quiet them down i i, I think i really just do want to hit on this because i have other questions for you i think there are a handful of people who are very successful in our industry who have built a big legacy of creating great information articles maybe they've written books they've built a really solid foundation and they will occasionally deal with some things that are ideologically more polarizing. That is not the same as building an audience based on a lot of ideological polarizing stuff as you are still emerging as a fitness professional. I personally think it is a career killer to dabble in these narratives because most of the time, the people who deal in these narratives, they tend to reflect all of the tribal belief systems of one side or the other And there's rarely individual nuance that I see. Now, private conversations one-on-one offline, most people are more nuanced. So I think for sure. And and, and let me, let me give you like one big example where I see this um, in, in fitness is you could have someone that is quite, let's say, let's use the word progressive on um, gay rights believing that there's a fair amount of racism, so on and so forth. But that same person could also think that dieting makes sense and that being overweight and obese is actually not healthy. Doesn't mean that we should judge people if they're overweight or obese, but like the science is pretty clear. You know, I once heard from someone in the fitness industry that someone said that like diabetes is just like a remnant of the patriarchy. It's not real. And I'm like, you know, have you ever been in a hospital and seen a diabetic amputation? Because that's that's about as real as it gets. So to me, that should like that's the perfect example. Like, 
in, in these tribes, then what happens is they completely collapse. And suddenly you've pissed off all the people that you thought you were making happy by your one statement or vice versa. Yep. And if you attract a tribe of people who are drawn to this extremist stuff and you deviate it from slightly, they will eat you alive. And I've watched yeah. the exact example you've said. And I just raised my hand there when you said a diabetic amputation is what killed my grandfather. Mm. So I'm sorry. No, and there's and that and that's what it is, right? It's just like that generation, you know, he's a four pack a day smoker. He's a very successful doctor and probably had a massive net impact on, you know, basically built a hospital, you know, powerful yeah. on on of good, but ultimately that lifestyle was a little different. So I right, so that's where I don't I don't have time for that bullshit of again like. Um, you know, and but these things are nuanced. Here's what you can't say on social media. I once I once tried so hard to do this, Andrew, and I think I did it well, but it was like not at all a popular post. And this is on Twitter where I have over 80,000 followers. And I basically said two things can be true at once. The first is that fat phobia, fat shaming, judging people based on their weight, people receiving different treatment based on their weight is absolutely a bad thing. It doesn't help anyone. What is also true is that being overweight and obese is associated with decreased longevity and decreased quality of life. Both of those things can be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. But no one wants to like no one wants to hear that, at least not in social media. And what all the research shows is that the way that you help and you know this better than we the way that you help someone on a weight loss journey is to get rid of the guilt and shame. Well, at the same time, keeping the hunger to lose weight because you want to be healthier and you want to be able to do things that you can't do when you're when you're 20, 25, 30 percent body fat. I guess not 20. That's pretty healthy. But 25, 30, you get the point. And depending on if it's a man or woman, too, because I was just going to say there's all this nuance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, but you get the point. 30 percent body fat is high, whereas a lot of women could be at 30 percent body fat. It's perfectly be quite healthy. Yep. Um, and this is why I point a lot of people to Brene Brown's work on shame, guilt, because I think yep. coaches should read that stuff. It'll really help with those conversations. And then the evidence-based nutrition stuff, which is Mike Isertel, Renaissance Periodization. It's um, The Hungry Brain by Stefan Guillenay, which is a great oh, one book. of my favorite books. And that for, for readers, that is not just a nutrition book. That is a book about our brain and everything. Um, one of my favorite recent books, phenomenal book. Uh, we're going all over the place, but I hope listeners find it interesting. <laughs> As a result of the hungry brain, and, and now I'm going to like do a little one-on-one uh, -on -one nutrition set, set, uh, session with you for myself. As a result of the hungry brain, I got this idea in my mind that I don't want to get over 200 pounds. And I'll tell you why. I used to think that it was purely calories in, calories out, and that that's what determined weight. And it is calories in and calories out. That's still my understanding that determines weight. But the amount of hunger that we have seems to be quite related to what we get used to. So my concern is that if I wanna get really big because I, 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 have, I power lift and it's like, it's, I'm not, you know, everyone listening to this probably lifts more than me, but I'm better than a newbie. So I'm trying to get strong. And part of me is like, oh, like, I want to really go for this. I'm 5'11", like, you know, I want to get bigger and lift more weight. But then another part of me is like, I don't think it would be healthy for me in my lifestyle to be 220 or 230 when I'm age 60. And I'm scared that if I get that big, unless I really focus on it, it's going to be hard to get under 200 pounds again. So that was like, that was my biggest action item from that book. And then my goal shifted for me 
and again, within my lifestyle is I want to get as strong as possible training no more than five days a week because I got other things to do and at no more than 205 pounds. Um, so that book really had a, a big impact on me. Um, and then I look at like former athletes and I, I cannot unsee the hungry brain because you look at an NBA basketball player that was, you know, 6'5", 240, freaking muscle. And then six years later, they're the same weight, but the muscle's gone. And these are some of the most disciplined people ever. They're playing in the NBA. I just think like hungry brain, hungry brain, hungry brain. I coach a former NFL player and yeah, he's a big dude who's one of his goals is to drop some weight. And, and it's hard because your brain gets used to being that big. And you, like you said, calories in, calories out absolutely is the fundamental truth underlying everything. But what the hungry brain does really well is the psychology and the physiology of the hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin. And right. how those things function as a thermostat for yes. appetite is the best way to look at it. And all of the things that go along with the body's evolutionary wiring, again, psychologically and physiologically to prevent us from starving in a world that, at least in the Western world where starvation is rarely a concern anymore, we now have this overabundance and our evolutionary wiring works against us, which is actually the primary reason why we have, you know, a quote, ep uh, ep epidemic of obesity. So yep. I encourage everybody, every coach to read that book. There's going to be a really good nuanced understanding. I recommend it to clients. Uh, my client, Larry, anybody who's on my social media loves Larry. He's a 72 year old who's really strong. And, and he read it and he thought it was great. So sometimes it's just getting these ideas in front of people and it may take time for them to percolate in your brain or you to act on them. But it's a good tool set for coaches to have. We don't have much time left, but this has been a, a fun and interesting conversation. And again, everybody listening, I hope people less get caught up in you know thoughts and comments that maybe deviate from your ideological lens and more about a filter to maybe it's if you're really serious about growing on social media, growing a, a career in this space you seeking authority in this space to really approach those conversations with caution. I've mentored coaches where, and one in particular, where he really struggled because he would get very immersed in these ideological conversations with clients. And then we had this sort of similar conversation about the net negative that impact it was having with those clients and how his mindset was always focused on this stuff. And he was always in a state of enragement and distraction and irritation because of the existential threat of the opposite tribe's behavior. That's that's kind of the, the thing that both sides push is this existential threat of everything horrible that will happen if we let the other side get their way. And got him to just kind of focus on the client in front of him, his goals, what have you. And the moment that he unfollowed all of the trash that he was following and focused on the client and his own reading books on, on development, his income started growing, his clientele got more stable, and he's noticing he's having a greater impact on the world, helping the person right in front of him. And he's more fulfilled, he's happier, there's less anxiousness and anxiety because he's not plugged into all this stuff that's designed to get him mad. And if anyone's listening to this kind of feeling, if, if you were in any moment like mad about anything that either one of us said about this stuff, or I want you to actually take a step back and question that and ask, all right, what's really going on there? And is this actually interfering with your ability to do what matters most, which is to get people healthier, share good messages. And, and maybe it's time to unplug from the people 
the the bad faith actors, the grifters, and even maybe some of the well-intentioned people that you really agree with, but you realize that this messaging is still distracting you and it's not good for your emotional well-being. And you'll be fed this narrative that if you turn a blind eye to this stuff, that you're ignoring it and then that's bad, you can still, I, I really believe this, if you put yourself in a position where you grow your platform, if you grow your income, you made a comment about volunteering. If you can have the time because you're more financially successful to go and volunteer in places that you're passionate about or donate money and financial resources to support causes you care about, that does a lot more than making a post on social media, lecturing the bad people of the wickedness of their belief system, and then patting yourself on the back in this little echo chamber that you live in and feeling good about a job well done when in fact you've actually done absolutely nothing to make the world a better place. I hope that hits home. That's a great, that's a great rant. Uh, and I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think you mentioned this earlier, like if you are someone that has developed a large platform and people that really trust you and you approach it in a nuanced way, and there's an issue that really matters to you, then I do think like, okay, take your shot and, and, and but then be careful not to get super caught up in it. And if people, if people unfollow you or they don't want to work with you because of your opinion, then try not to take that personally either and be like, you know, that's on them. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred percent. Um, I'm a hundred percent with you. And, and I think that, um, the best thing to do is again, get back to your local community because like when you can have a beer with someone generally, or if you don't drink beer or coffee, generally you can find some common ground on an issue. Now, there are certain people where there's no way you could have common ground, but again, don't let that piss you off. There's 7 billion people in the world. You know, I would never get along with certain people and, and that's okay. I don't need to get along with everyone, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna sit there and respond to all their tweets. That's dumb, that's a waste of a life. And we know that one of the easiest ways to get people's attention is to argue, say something. The former president of America was a master of this and he did it all the way to the White House. We're not even touching that. I'm Canadian. Uh, that's that's one that I don't think I could actually enjoy having a beer with. I, I shouldn't say I'd probably enjoy it. It'd be very entertaining, but it would it would be hard. <laughs> I, I have a rule. I generally try to steer clear of all politicians. Um, yeah. Anyway, this is amazing. I hope that everybody listening actually took a lot of value out of it. I, I and, and, and let me say something really quick, Andrew. Too, we we were all over the place, but I hope like what what this hopefully showed, and it's something that I try to do is a. You can bring humor to all kinds of things and be just like be intent. This is what being grounded is all about. Be intentional and be deliberate and think about what game you're playing and what you're trying to do and don't play someone else's game and really focus on the process because that's going to make you the person that you want to become. So if you want to become a great power lifter, obsessing about, you know, hitting 1800 pounds or 1700 pounds, whatever it is, it's not going to make you a great power lifter. What's going to make you a great power lifter is training hard in a community of other people that get it with good coaching. If you want to be a nuanced intellectual thinker, well, following a bunch of people on either extreme on social media, it's going to turn you into an extremist. It's not going to turn you into a nuanced intellectual thinker. So ask yourself, like, what's the person you want to become? And then immerse yourself in that process and surround yourself with people that get it and that have similar goals. Doesn't mean people that are just going to say yes to you and agree, but that have similar goals. 
I mean, you mentioned, you know, on, on, on kind of like big picture intellectual things. I'd love to spar with in good faith conservatives because that's how I get better and smarter. And sometimes I change my mind and I learn things. So it's not to say like avoid other people, but find people that want to play the game that you're playing and do it in good faith. And then those are the people to surround yourself with. And those are the groups to be in. And I would say do it in a forum that's more conducive to nuanced conversation. Yes. Generally speaking, public facing social media is not. Yeah. I, I definitely want people to check out your book. So A, where can they follow you on social media? B, uh, the books and C, you have a book in the works. So any timetable on, on that book, what it's going to be about. All right. So A, um, as Andrew knows, and you've been so helpful and supportive. So thank you. I'm on Instagram and it, my handle is just my name at Brad Stahlberg. I'm on Twitter at B Stahlberg. I'm a little bit less active there because I've just seen Twitter um, not great for, for me. I get I take the bait too often, if I'm being totally honest. <laughs> um, my books are available wherever books are sold. So if you're in the States, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, your local bookseller. If you're in Canada or Europe, Amazon Canada or um, one of the European suites for Amazon will work. And um, my next book comes out in September of this year. Uh, so I'll, Andrew, you'll get an early copy and maybe we'll, we'll be able to have another conversation about it. Oh, you'll be coming back if you want. Um, I know that you'll also be making a, an appearance on Luca's podcast in the near future. Guys, keep an eye out for that. A anyone listening will know Luca. Luca and I travel in a lot of same circles. So this is a pleasure. Um, and I think everybody listening, if you get into our social media, you'll find them fairly devoid of political ideological discussion. So this is sort of a rare treat. Uh, but it's fun to do this stuff. And I think we showed people how to do it and if you are new to me and you you found me through brad's media at all well i would say just a you can take a look through my guest list of my previous oh i'll just do the quick plug man if you're new to andrew and you found andrew through me there are very few people out in the wide world of fitness that are doing it in a way that aligns with the values of sustainable excellence so thoughtful, evidence-based, rigorous, lots of discipline, but also lots of compassion. And there's not a better source on uh, on Instagram, at least, I've, I've found for evidence-based fitness that is a good mix of motivation and inspiration, but also hard truths about what works, but always from a place of compassion. So if you're not checking out Andrew's stuff, you should. That's my plug. And I think with the podcast itself, if you scroll through, I mean, we mentioned Mike Isertel and Nick Shaw, they've been past guests. I think some of the people listening will probably really appreciate people like Molly Galbraith and Sohi Lee. Sohi, in particular, exudes a lot of the things that you just said, too. So, But either way, maybe scroll through. There will probably be people you recognize and you may want to stick around. But in the meantime, for everybody else, if you're not already following Brad, go follow his Instagram. His Instagram is really good. I find myself liking it all, sharing it all. I like the format. And we've had we've been jamming a lot on kind of how to go about it. So it's one of my favorite types of conversation. Uh, Brad, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and I, and again, guys, go check out The Practice of Groundedness. This is the kind of book that gets away from the, the, the pressure to hustle. And I think it's a good compliment to, like, I like Gary Vaynerchuk. I really do like Gary V. I think there's a lot of good stuff there. But you also have to kind of place a limit on that kind of mindset. And I think your book is a really good compliment to that kind of stuff. And there's a place for it. Anyone that gets fitness gets this trade-off, right? Because sometimes, in the words of my good friend Steve, sometimes you got to go see God. You got to go to the well.
and you got to do a 10 out of 10 session and you got to be curled up in the corner in the fetal position. You got to pull the all nighter. You got to go all in for a period of time. But anyone that's trained, any good athlete knows that you cannot do that sustainably. You cannot do that all the time. So you've got to pick your spots to go to the well, and then you've got to figure out a way to be really consistent, which requires a fair amount of rest, a fair amount of groundedness. And that's how you get, that's how you play the long game. At least that, that's what I think. And that's what the evidence shows. Let's leave it there. Brad, thank you so much. Everybody tuning in. Thank you guys so much. I'll be bringing you back another great guest next week. Thanks for, you know, just being here for the long haul with me. I appreciate you guys. Thank you.